This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome to Energy Sense. Um, Brian, we, we went a little long on this interview again. Um, so, so I think we've got another twofer in store for our listeners. That's what happens when you have such great guests joining us, Hill. Yeah, and, and such a great topic, the, uh, the, the California energy crisis, uh, what we've all been reading about in the papers, and, and Wade and Doug do a great job analyzing power markets for IHS. So without further ado, we'll hand off to the episode and uh, be ready for a break in the middle because we're going to turn this into a two-parter. Thanks. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast devoted to covering topics that lie on the intersection of finance and energy markets. I'm Hill Vaden here today as usual with Brian Doherty. Brian, how are you? I'm great, Hill. Uh, doing pretty good. What's what's today? Thursday? Um, that's always nice. We're getting close to the end of the week. Yeah, another long weekend with uh, Labor Day. I know. You, you got to live for them, right? Yeah. Sadly, though, summer's almost over and school is in some ways back in session, in some ways not at all normal. Very true. Although I will say um, I, I live in New York and you're definitely seeing some shifts in the neighborhood as kids have rolled back to start school, but also the playground action has shifted in time, you know, like what times are busy at the playground now. Um, so it's a whole new universe that we're trying to navigate this yeah. week as opposed to last week. <laughs> Well, and so, so these, are, these are the exciting times I live at the moment. Uh, shifts in playground time schedules. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it only gets better and, and yeah. only more normal. <laughs> Here's hoping. Although last night um, I, I went I ran to the drugstore quickly and there was these mobs of people and I, I'm walking around and I don't know what's going on. It's obviously in some paparazzi cameras or whatever. So it must be somebody, you know, and then oh. they just start randomly chasing a car. And I'm thinking, who could possibly be in this car? I'm in there buying uh, some stuff at the drugstore. And I asked the woman and I said, so, I mean, these mobs of people, I mean, who's possibly staying at the, at the hotel that's across the street where sometimes some famous people stay. And she said, Oh, it's the weekend. He's been there since the MTV video awards the other night. And now people have figured out that he's there. And I, I mean, obviously, I'm completely out of touch. I know he must be popular, but wow, I did not expect the hysteria that was happening. People running with record, like with album covers that they obviously wanted him to sign through the streets. It was nuts. I didn't know MTV was having music awards. Yeah, so they did it. They, I, I think with a lot of green screens and stuff, and, and they were kind of on, I think they filmed it, part of it over by Hudson Yards and over by the IHS market, actually, uh, offices, actually, probably was where it was. And so they, they kept everybody distant. Lady Gaga wore um, a quite elaborate mask system huh. when she appeared on it, not surprisingly. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's uh, maybe use that as a segue to introduce our two guests. Uh, there, there was a, uh, we, we've got uh, Doug Jufri and uh, Wade, Wade Shaver. Uh, from IHS Markets Power Team um, to talk with us today about the recent challenges to the California power markets. Um, and I guess related to music awards, uh, Wade covers West Coast and Doug covers the East Coast. So, so we've got a bit of a biggie uh, Tupac thing going here. Uh, <laughs> welcome, guys. Yeah, thanks, so. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah. yeah uh, thank you. Happy to be here. We're glad to have you. And and Doug, you uh, you may be used to having paparazzi's uh, or paparazzi, I guess, is plural. You're a, uh, a a football announcer, right? And you're in uh, Southern Ohio. Um, yeah, you, you know, I lack the uh, football knowledge to coach football, so the only way I can remain involved <laughs> is to announce it during the games, the youth football games. So I'm trying to keep the dream alive. And do you ha- are you in a, a small enough area where, where people recognize your voice when you? go through drive through or something like that? <laughs> Hardly, but I am heckled nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's well, nice to have a celebrity on our podcast for once, Hill. It is, yeah. particularly exciting now. It's a long weekend coming up. We've got a celebrity. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I guess we should do a, a, a warning to, to other listeners out there that, that we, we may end up spoiling uh, Frozen 2 or the ending of Frozen 2. Uh, as we have a discussion with, uh, you know, particularly Wade, who, uh, as we were preparing for this con- conversation, Wade introduced us to, um, I guess it was m- maybe not so subtle uh, commentary on power markets in-, in Frozen 2, Wade? Yes. So again, you know, spoiler alert, but yes, you know, for, for those for those energy professionals out there, Frozen 2 is a great case study in uh, in electricity markets for sure and, and carbon-free electricity at that. And, and to a degree, because I, I watched it last night uh, in, in preparation. <laughs> what did you think? I, I thought it was, you know, I'll say good, not great. Um, <laughs> and and I, <laughs> I told Brian this morning that, that I found myself, I, I you know, after the movie ended, we put the kids to bed. Um, I spent way too long uh, on YouTube watching uh, Peter Cetera and Chicago music videos because so much of the songs were like this. Uh, uh, is it adult convention or what, what's what's the adult contemporary? Um, but particularly the, the guy with the reindeer when he's singing about how he wants to marry Anna. Uh, yeah, the power ballads were strong. The power ballad is yeah, that's solid. <laughs> It's straight out of the uh, Friday Kid too. Uh, <laughs> glory, glory of love, or glory. I don't remember the name of the song. Power of love. How is it? No, that that's uh, that, that's Huey Lewis, isn't it? Oh well, well maybe you're right. Yeah, whatever it is, it's Peter Cetera. It's ex Chicago bassist, uh, and it's the one with uh, Karate Kid too, which uh, you know I suppose is another sequel <laughs> with uh, Frozen. Um, and we've got, um, you know, another sequel happening right now in California uh, with, uh, I'm not sure energy crisis is the right word for it, uh, for what's happening now, but, but this, that, that was what sparked this, uh, this podcast, no pun intended. Um, you know, Wade, uh, you put out a report maybe a month or two ago, uh, or two, two weeks ago, I guess, looking at what's going on in uh, California. And, and I don't cover the power markets closely and come from a background of you know, oil and gas uh, coverage. Can you maybe help to explain to us uh, what, what's going on in, power, in California power right now and how it's either different to what happened in 2001 or similar? Sure, yeah, maybe you know, a mini crisis perhaps, maybe a Friday surprise. Um, so on, on August 14th, um, uh, a lot of people live in California, about 400,000 people, um, you know, that evening, um, probably watching Netflix or whatever, which is what I do on my evenings in this current world, um, you know, found, found that interrupted by the lights going out. So, so on Friday, August 14th, to somewhat surprised with no warning, 
um, the the power grid operator called Kaiso, which you'll, you might hear us mention, um, they had to cut power, cut one gigawatt of power. Uh, so so at the time, um, electricity demand was about 40 gigawatts. So they had to turn off the lights for about one gigawatt uh, of, of worth of customers in the market for two hours. That's because there, there weren't enough power plants available uh, to supply that electricity to the customers. So in power, in power there, up until now or up until recently, there really hasn't been storage. So other commodities you can store and, and you know tap it or pull it out when you need it. But for electricity, you need to create it when you need it. And so if you can't create it when you need it, that can either lead to cascading outages, which is really bad, or it could lead to the grid operator voluntarily cutting off power to some customers to bring demand back down to align with supply. And so that's what happened in California that Friday evening of August 14th. You said it's a surprise that the, the residents were not aware it was going to happen? Right, so the residents weren't aware, the governor wasn't aware apparently until it happened. Um, and um, and there really wasn't, uh, I don't think there were alerts either from the from the grid operator and up until it was about to happen. So yeah, so it was somewhat of a surprise. I mean, um, it was the hottest day up until that point in California and the previous day was also hot and, and the forecast was hot. Um, so, so the temperatures were rising and when temperatures rise, electricity demand rises too because of all the air conditioning. Um, but yeah, so, you know, somewhat surprisingly at the time, um, you know, when, when electricity demand was, was cresting, um, or near its crest at 7 PM, um, there weren't enough power plants available to meet it. And so they had to turn off, turn off the lights, uh, for a couple hours. Up and down the state or, or, or was it confined to a few major areas? So it kind of spread it out. Um, but it was, it was up and down the, the state. So Sandy. Diego, Los Angeles, and then uh, other parts of Southern California, Northern California uh, lost power. So they they try to rotate it uh, across customers, so not the same people aren't impacted for the same amount of time. So they were doing it about one hour bursts, and so it's all you know it's part of utility contingency planning. So they have plans in place, you know, if this if this emergency situation to arise, you know, to to take certain sections of the grid offline, and they and they try to avoid hospitals or other sensitive locations uh, that would really rather not have their power cut. They try to avoid that and um, and spread out um, the inconvenience. Uh, and again, ultimately, it's to keep keep the grid operating um, operating to avoid a, a uncontrolled outage that could affect a lot more people for a lot longer point of time. So it was done in a controlled manner to help make sure that most people could keep their electricity and then also bring it back as soon as they were able to two hours later. So the fact that it was the notice hadn't gone out prior to it happening. Does that indicate that it was controlled, but maybe last minute controlled, or they just it, do they normally put out notifications? How? how? Yes. Yeah, so, so typically there's some warning that things are getting tight. So you know you can you can look at where demand's heading. Um, you know situational awareness. You, you know somewhat aware of. Where power plants are operating, which ones are available, which which aren't available, um, but in this so so you know for example you know on on Thursday September third um, heading into the holiday weekend um, just this afternoon Kaiso issued another issued a notice that said hey everyone things are heating up again in California uh, things are going to get tight uh, this weekend uh, through I think Tuesday next week. 
And so everyone be aware, you know, we might have to do this again. And hey, everyone out there who owns power plants, we really need you. So do everything you can to be available uh, in the evening when everyone wants to sit and eat dinner and watch Netflix and, and cool off in the air conditioning. Um, so, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see how things shake out this coming weekend. But yes, typically you get a notice like this beforehand that on Friday, August 14th, there really wasn't much warning when um, when all of a sudden, you know, uh, grid operators realized they couldn't meet demand at 7 p.m. How is this? I mean, th this happened, what, 19 years ago, 20 years ago. Is this is what's driving these disruptions, the, the same things as it was then, or, or is this a, uh, a new trigger? So this is different. Um, back then was the early days of deregulation. Um, so, you know, in historical context, um, electricity uh, has, has been and still is uh, a highly regulated industry. And, um, and it used to be um, uniformly completely regulated by the government. So, you know, you'd have a regulated monopoly in, in all across the country. Um, and, uh, you know, a political regulator would oversee a company that, you know, owns the power plants and owns all the power lines and creates the power and sends it to the customer. You know, one entity would own all that. Um, but, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century um, and, you know, uh, late, late, you know, the late 1990s, uh, economists uh, developed plans to deregulate uh, electricity markets to bring some, you know, free market uh, forces to try to lower costs um, and, and um, you know, use markets to try to more efficiently supply power to customers and lower the cost of electricity. And so California back in 2001 was in the early days of this new world. And, um, and, you know, at that point, um, you know, there were issues with the market structure, market design policy, and um, some companies like Enron uh, that most people are familiar with, um, you know, their actions within the market construct, you know, contributed to the tight conditions and the ongoing outages. Whereas this time it's, it's more, it was much, much smaller. So only one gigawatt out of 40 gigawatts. So, you know, relatively small percentage and it was very short, you know, two hours on Friday, uh, on Saturday, August 15th, it was 20 minutes. And mm -hmm. so it was really just, um, just you know, a, a, a unique or hopefully somewhat unique uh, circumstance where um, where sort of conditions aligned uh, to lead to uh, a supply shortfall and the need to cut power, you know, temporarily to customers. But does it point to any weaknesses within the grid within kaizo specifically is there is there things that have been happening within the the grid itself or changes in the generation profile for instance that are are making maybe the region more vulnerable to this going forward or is it really a one-off yeah so it's not necessarily more vulnerable um so california has a renewable portfolio standard and so that's a, a state law that requires utilities and, and load serving entities so it's not just utilities but there are other electricity providers in the state, um, like, you know, competitive retailers or these things called community choice aggregators, which are municipal um, government, sort of proxy government um, organizations that supply energy uh, to customers in the state. All those, all those folks are responsible for covering a certain percentage of their retail sales from renewables, renewable sources of power. So at the end of this year, they have to 33% of their electricity supply has to come from renewables at the end of this year. 
And, you know, that's up from, you know, decades ago when there wasn't this policy. Um, so the California power market is decarbonizing uh, with more and more renewables. You know, California is on the leading edge uh, all across the world with advancing renewable power and sourcing more electricity from from renewables. And renewables are variable because um, they're not they're not controlled uh, by a mechanical device, you know, solar solar generation depends on sunshine you can't you can't really control the sun uh, mr burns tried to in the simpsons <laughs> and, and, and failed at doing that um but um but yeah so so you you need to operate your power system and build infrastructure and run infrastructure around these variable resources and um and so you know what happened on august 14th was an example where solar was was setting was coming down right so 7 p.m the sun's very low in the sky solar output is very low and wind is usually coming up at that time and so what happened on on friday was that wind was a lot lower than it usually is um and um and that wind shortfall from what was expected or what is typically expected in the evening in the summer that contributed to most of the one gigawatt gap uh, but then there are other factors at play, like there were there were um, about uh, five gigawatts of power plants that were offline, um, not available, which isn't out of the ordinary. You know, they have to go offline for maintenance, and it's no different than historically what's offline on a summer afternoon. Um, but that five gigawatts, you know, some chunk of them really would have come in handy since only one gigawatt was needed to keep the lights <laughs> on. Um, but, you know, with the wind shortfall and some of these power plants offline, that led to the grid operator having to cut power uh, for those two hours. And Doug, when when you're covering the, the East Coast, uh, some of these East Coast markets, I think you focus on PGM and, and some of the other. Are, are you watching? Are you paying attention to what's happening in, in California? I'm sure you are, but but how how is, how is what's happening in California influencing uh, what what's going on the East Coast, if at all? Yeah. So power markets throughout. Eastern United States and in the South tend to look at what happens in California because they have, as Wade pointed out, been at the leading edge of deregulation, leading edge of decarbonization, and there's always lessons to be learned. And it's not just East Coast markets. European power markets often um, look to what's happening in the U.S. power markets. Uh, Canadian um, grid operators try and understand from lessons learned here. And that's why this is so relevant, um, because as Wade's pointed out, this isn't necessarily uh, because of wind or they've pushed renewables too aggressively. Um, that has been some uh, hot takes that you've seen in the industry and the popular press. Uh, it's more complicated than that. But nevertheless, there is concern among great operators uh, because I think it's well understood within the industry that as you grow intermittent variable resources, so wind and solar, as Wade pointed out, they're not controllable. As they grow to be 25, 50, 75% of the energy or capacity on the grid, you need systems that are very flexible uh, because load doesn't respond that quickly. So if the sun, when the sun goes down, we know we need other resources available. If suddenly wind speeds slow down, you don't have the wind available, you need other resources that can pick up, uh, pick up the ball. And Texas was a good example last year, where they've got a very complicated market, uh, where they re just rely totally on price fluctuations to incentivize developers. There's not as much administrative oversight as we have in eastern markets or in, in California. 
Um, so they were, you know, going through late August um, and wind speeds were fairly high, getting a lot of output on the grid. And then winds slowed down uh, pretty sharply and the wind output, wind generation available to the grid declined. Intercot had you know, the amount of surplus generation that you typically need was shrunk very dramatically and power prices skyrocketed. Now, that is part of the design of Texas. That is kind of how they plan the market. They want those high prices. That sends a signal to developers to build. But I think it reinforces the idea that this is very complex. Um, you can have sudden changes. And if you don't have well-designed grid with a lot of resources available, you can find yourself short. And so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think grid operators in the East recognize that Decarbonization is underway uh, pretty aggressively, you know, the last five years, but many utilities, many states have targets that are um, full decarbonization in some cases, in some states, regions. Um, they recognize this challenge is coming, and so they're always watching California to see uh, what lessons may be learned from their experience. And, and I think this will be another example of, you know, the entire industry is going to study what happened here and see you know, what lessons they can learn in California, what changes need to be made. Is there a way from anybody that you I mean, this is still rather recent. It's only a couple weeks old, but, but are you sensing a, a new caution from anybody on the East Coast or, or was some of this expected? And for those in the know kind of baked into plans? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Wade and I uh, did a webinar. Wade wrote a paper last year talking about the coming challenge in California and in the desert Southwest, you know, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, you know, part of it was uh, state mandates to close down some natural gas plants, and there were significant plans to build, bring in replacement capacity. Some of that has been slow to enter the market. And so Wade identified this looming challenge. So I don't think that it was I don't want to say unexpected. It clearly no one expected there to be outages like this happening this summer, but people recognized that uh, the risk level was elevated and the margins had gotten so tight. We're not there on the East Coast. These markets largely are very oversupplied. Um, that doesn't mean you can't have events. In the East, the concern more recently has been in the wintertime. You know, in the PGM market I follow, we had the 2014 polar vortex where you know, coal stacks uh, froze, gas pipelines were constrained, and there were a lot of fossil generators unavailable. And that sparked significant reforms in for the grid operators to uh, increase the penalties for generators that aren't available um, and also encourage performance. So there's bonus payments available to them. So that event prompted significant reforms to the markets. Um, you know, Wade in his paper has outlined some things we may see happen in California that maybe can kind of alleviate this in the future, or, or that, that may be the incorrect way to say it, to maybe tamp down the risk. And what would those be, Wade? Yeah, so in this case, you know, instead of the East learning from the West, perhaps the West can learn from the East. Um, so, so in California, uh, the power plant owners, they don't really have any skin in the game when it comes to uh, not being able to meet load, like like Doug was just talking about, so so in some of the eastern markets, you know, if there's there's financial risk um, to the plant operators or owners, 
if they're not available during a system emergency like California declared or Kaiso declared, if they're not available in the east, they pay you know a pretty hefty penalty uh, for not being around when they're needed. In California, that penalty structure doesn't exist. Um, so once once you know a power plant's contracted by the utilities, uh, the power plant owners you know they have they have some obligations that they need to bid into the market, uh, but they don't have explicit penalties for not being available. And in the east, you know the for the penalties you know could be for any reason. So if you're down for maintenance. Um, you're still liable you know, for a penalty if you're not available. Whereas in California, again, there there were five gigawatts of plant outages. You know, perhaps there was nothing nothing wrong with that, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, but but if it was like the East, you know, those plants would would bear some financial burden for not being available uh, when the Kaiso grid really needed them desperately. And so that's one one possible area of reform uh, that California policymakers could look at. Um, there are others, you know, one one is just, um, you know, contracting with power plants further ahead of time. So in the east, they lock in power supply, you know, from a reliability standpoint, you know, making sure they're around. They lock it in three years ahead of time. And in California, most of the power plants that they lock in uh, one year ahead of time or even um, a fraction of them, you know, a month ahead of time. And so there's not a lot of time to realize there's a mismatch and incentivize someone else to come in with a new development, a new project, a new power plant. And so, you know, they may look to, you know, increase the increase the length of the price signal to get people to react sooner uh, to this uns more uncertain, more complex world we're getting to where, you know, probabilities and statistics and everything feed into, you know, variable generation rather than more of a, deterministic, you know, view of I have gas in my pipeline, I burn it, I make electricity, you know, it's somewhat certain to a greater degree than knowing, you know, if if August 14th, 2023, if it's going to be sunny or not, that's less certain. And so if you if you can send that price signal three years ahead of time instead of, you know, one year ahead of time, which really is not long enough to build any new infrastructure of significance, um, if you can send that sooner, uh, perhaps, you know, you can build up your your fleet of power plants and not cut things as close as what happened on August 14th. Yeah, if I could just add on to that, you know, the planning and the capacity market models that are used in, say, New England and PJM that use this three-year forward uh, auction, that does help to balance out the timing of when resources exit. So if there's a large coal plant or nuclear facility that is planning to retire, that would be observed in this auction. It would prompt prices to rise, signaling a shortage, and new generators can compete to meet that need. And so you know three years in advance, presumably what your balance is going to be. Incentives have been made for resources to become available. Uh, as it happens, <laughs> there are some balances there uh, in terms of, you know, PJM is among the most oversupplied markets in the country. What we've seen there is, you know, they sit on top of the Mar Marcellus and the Utica shale. You can build uh, new natural gas plants uh, quite cheaply there, and they dispatch frequently. So, you know, there's been a lot of development activity there. In in excess, you know, new additions have outpaced retiring coal plants, and there's been criticism of that market design um, because they're saying there's too much capacity. The market design is you know overbuilt the system and ultimately consumers are paying for that. 
So, you know, there's folks who are critical of that system as well, saying, they're you know, reliability is valuable, but you may be overpaying for it. So, so they're paying for the overbill just in the rate catch up. Is that? How That's right. You're right. So the, the grid operator will say, for instance, we, you know, we need 140,000 uh, gigawatts, or excuse me, uh, 140,000 megawatts of capacity. Um, and then they, they'll compete in this auction of suppliers to meet that demand. Now, th this may be getting too far into the weeds, but they use a downward sloping demand curve. Ultimately, what that means is, although the grid operator set a target for how much supply they want, they can procure more at a lower price. But ultimately, the load serving entities are responsible for covering that, and that means consumers. And so there's been folks in the you know, policymakers in Illinois that have been very critical of the market design of PJM. And those folks point to that Texas model I spoke about as, you know, maybe that's the right design where, you know, the market is a bit thinner and tighter, um, but the consumers aren't paying for a lot of excess capacity. Uh, my personal view is that um, Texas model is going to be tested. We thought it would be in 2020, but given the pandemic and, and a bit more moderate levels of electricity demand, it looks like they'll get through the summer without being truly tested. Um, but in the coming years, we'll really get a good look at how well that market functions. So has this event changed, do you think, anything to do with the retirement schedule that people have sort of baked into their forecast at this point? Do we think that there's shifts that are coming on that? Maybe keeping keeping some gas peakers around a little longer than maybe it was originally planned? Or was this event not enough to trigger that much of a change? Yeah, so that was actually already in motion before this. Um, so there's been, you know, there's been growing concern about not having enough uh, power capacity in, in CAISO. And I do want to point something out. So I keep saying CAISO instead of California, or at least I tried to, because the rest of California didn't, didn't have a problem on August 14th, 15th or beyond. Uh, so there are other smaller grids uh, within California, like Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which is a municipal utility and water provider, Sacramento Municipal Utility District in Sacramento. Um, and so they they run their own grid. They, they own their own generation. They do the planning and they didn't have an issue. So so, you know, there's you know, there's questions around that. You know, is there something unique um, in, in Kaiso that's different from the rest and maybe looking at their peers to figure out, you know, ways to improve? Um, but anyways, is something unique or is there, I mean, are those smaller? Is that part of it that, that it's easier? Yeah, it's smaller. It's probably easier to manage. Um, yeah, smaller, um, you know, that's probably a big part of it. Um, but again, you know, early days after the, after the um, event. And so, you know, folks like ourselves will be digging into the details more and, and looking at those comparisons and figuring out, you know, are there lessons to be learned? But as far as the retirements, um, so they've already... So they've already backed off some of the retirements coming for Kaiso, and they're already planning on doing it before this happened. It was actually just approved um, this week, the first week of September. And so some of the gas plants um, on the coast, they're subject to an environmental rule called the once through cooling rule, which is actually tied to the federal Clean Water Act. But basically it targets big industrial facilities on the coast that pull ocean water in and cycle it through the plant and then dump it out back into the ocean when it's hotter. And that has negative environmental effects. And so, um, you know, over over 10 gigawatts of plants are scheduled to retire in California, gas plants uh, that are affected by this rule. 
And a couple gigawatts of them were supposed to retire this year, uh, but now it's been delayed for for you know, about three years, two, three years, so that there's more time to bring more resources online, particularly more time to build up batteries and to, to you know reduce the risk of you know losing a chunk of capacity while other uh, pieces of capacity are being built, especially in a world where you know California is dealing with extreme heat waves. I think Labor Day weekend's potentially going to be a record heat wave for the state. You know, you know, um, discussions is this climate change, um, and so just given the uncertainty, you know, that's just added uncertainty and complexity. You know, is the environment our summers changing? California is the environment changing? You know, so to help address that uncertainty alongside the uncertainty with renewable generation, um, you know, to provide extra cushion, they're going to keep these plants around for a couple more years. But they'll still, we still think they'll retire, and ultimately, we think. Um, you know, batteries can play, you know, quite a large role in incremental capacity and batteries joining, you know, the grid and, and pairing, you know, pairing with the installed gas fleet that already exists in California. Batteries can help provide that, that incremental, that additional firm capacity cushion to help with balancing renewables and, and meeting reliability objectives uh, going forward. So if we're talking about new build then or any greenfield power generation development is it at this point all renewable and battery based um not just in california or just in kaizo but but more broadly across the us are there regions where um we are seeing you know still well i know the answer to some of this but i'll let you guys being the experts on power explain <laughs> that but it on from a gas perspective especially i mean obviously coal we i don't expect much growth there but where where is there a role still for gas um either within these grids themselves or around the rest of the us and and can batteries really provide the backfill uh for for widespread gas retirement at this point is that so so for california i'll start with california then i'll turn over the doug um for california um about about half the the power fleet power generation fleet in california is gas um today and um, going forward, um, you know, with California's ultimate goal to get to 100% carbon-free power generation by 2045, you know, going forward, the preference is going to be for non-carbon-emitting resources. Um, and so renewables uh, continue to be added, uh, and they provide, you know, low-cost energy. Energy, you know, being one piece to what you need in a power system. Um, but you need capacity, which is this reliability question, right? You need to have the power plants there to turn up uh, when demand is going up and have it all come together. And so renewables um, provide a little bit of capacity, um, but really ultimately you need something that's dispatchable. And so, um, you know, it's, it's looking to be largely batteries in California uh, for incremental dispatchable uh, generation capacity and with the high levels of solar um, in California so solar oh I don't know it's maybe um, 15 15 20 percent something like that of generation I mean it keeps growing so it keeps going up every year um, considering how sunny California is and it's, it's pretty cheap um, but but solar with solar playing such a large role in the power supply it actually uh, leads to conditions that actually improve the competitiveness of batteries and so the solar build, which is being built for energy, sets up a sets up you know changes the variables in a way that actually favors battery developers to come in and, and build batteries. And so, 
battery should you know should be able to get us into the evening and, and cover demand. So, so that's the situation in California. And gas will gradually retire, but we need gas, and um, and it's going to be a mix of renewables, batteries, and gas that allows California to keep lowering its carbon emissions. And I think this is good a time as any to cut off for our first section of this podcast and stay tuned for next week when we publish section two with Doug and Wade, where we're going to elaborate a little bit more on this battery discussion, but also uh, very importantly expand into what this means for other regions around the U.S. as opposed to just California. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.